Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23 as we come back to our study of this momentous day in the life of our Lord, his final day of public teaching and uh, one of the last days of his life before his crucifixion. And it has been a day we've been seeing uh, has been filled with questions and controversies from his opponents on all number of subjects. But as we transition from Matthew 22 into chapter 23, we, we transition to a point where Jesus has essentially silenced them all. He has answered all their questions and now they dare not ask him anything else. And it opens him up to address what is apparently the thing that is on his heart and mind, the final thought and the final sermon that he wants to preach before the people. And among all the things he could have talked about, among the centralities of the gospel or maybe the exaltation of, of uh, God's glory or perhaps just the reliability of God's word or any number of things that he wanted to address, he takes this final time, this final sermon to talk on a subject that must have been compelling to him and dire for the sake of Israel and for all mankind. It's the issue of leadership, spiritual leadership. That was at, his, at the core of his concern and at the center of his heart and what he wanted Israel to understand and what he wanted to punctuate as his message to Israel and to all of us in his final sermon. The issue of leadership. It's an expansive sermon that goes all the way through this chapter and iconic and memorable in so many ways. And in so many ways, it reflects and echoes other great sermons about spiritual leadership that were shared with Israel throughout all of their history from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets. There are woes that are spelled out throughout this chapter. Woe is a kind of expression of grief, but when it is directed at someone else, it is more of a a warning of dire trouble that is ahead of you. This is a, a message of warning, a sermon of warning from Jesus, not only to Israel's leaders, but to Israel in general and to all people, a warning about the necessity of choosing leaders, identifying leaders carefully. This was a significant opportunity not only for the leadership of Israel to reflect on their own lives and to think about the potential judgment that they faced before God because of their, because of their leadership, but it is a significant opportunity for those who are followers of Christ to think and to contemplate the kind of leaders that God desires. Now, this couldn't be more compelling for any group of people than in our own time, when there seems to be an utter confusion about this topic of leadership. Probably never been more written on the subject and more uh, uh, spoken, if you will, more opportunities to hear people talk about leadership and more confusion about the subject of leadership than probably any time in history. When we think of leaders today, when we hear about leaders today, so much of the focus tends to be on things like their decisiveness and their, their sort of uh, uh, 
uh, ability to make things happen or their their charisma, their persona, or maybe their accomplishments and their achievements. But when it comes to Christ, when it comes to this sermon, when it comes to genuine spiritual leadership for Jesus, it comes down to one thing, character. It was all and is all about character, the inner person. Leadership above everything else is about character because leadership above everything else is about influence more than it is about managing or decision-making or motivating or anything, any of those other things, more than it is about personality or achievements. It is about influence, particularly on those nearest to you and then through those people, those who are even further from you. Jesus said this essentially whenever he said, when everyone is fully trained, they'll be like their teacher. So uh, whether you're training, teaching, leading, or whatever it is, you're influencing those around you. Or if you want to look at from the other side, following is so often about aspiration. It's about yearning. It's about seeking. It's about longing for someone to show the way, to kind of guide you through whatever darkness that you might feel is there. And when you're in that kind of environment, the one thing that you need above everything else is character. You need character. Jesus knows this. And so as he comes to his final sermon, his final message to Israel, the thing that he wants to punctuate his ministry, the thing that he wants Israel to be thinking about, he zeroes in on this issue of leadership character because it determines everything. We understand that instinctively in so many areas of life. When you go to choose someone to watch your children, you're not primarily thinking about whether or not they can heat a bottle of milk or whether or not they can uh, you know, warm a... Uh, some leftover meals. You're not even really primarily focused on whether or not they can manage a clock and get your kids in bed on time. The first and foremost thing on your mind is character. Does this person have character to watch over my children? And as instinctively as, as we make that connection, as obvious as as it is for something like watching over our kids, for whatever reason, people don't always make that connection when it comes to their leaders. But character determines everything. You look around in our culture and wonder whether people uh, could even make that connection, certainly whether they even believe that today. People today have replaced concepts of character with psychological concepts. They've jettisoned integrity in favor of intransigence and militancy and and uh, determination and, and those kinds of things. Those are the leaders that they are aspiring after and those are the ones that they're longing for, it would seem. Meanwhile, all around them, the world is crumbling. Freedoms are diminishing. Community is deteriorating. Trust and justice are eradicated. And people are oblivious as to the reasons why. They don't seem to be able to draw the connection between the erosion of all those virtues and the erosion of character in their leaders. One writer 
James Davidson Hunter in his book, The Death of Character, explains this to some extent. He says the reason people have rejected character among their leaders is because they no longer want the stringent demands that come from those leaders. They have uh, they've grown weary of being preached to about ideals. He summarizes, he says, our society, we want moral community, but without limitation to personal freedom. We, wanna, we still fancy that we could have some level of high morality, but we just don't want it to infringe on us. Or he says, we want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt and shame. We want good without having to name evil. We want decency without moral authority to insist on it. And so because of all those things, we want leaders who we think of as having character, but we just don't want them with conviction. Well, it doesn't work that way. People who seek out leaders who just are a reflection of their own compromise, they taste the results. They bear the brunt of where that leads a life that no longer can be emulated, a source that it can no longer be, be imitated, the steps of someone who's leading you in a very dangerous direction. We have leaders now who perhaps are capable of getting things done, but only by threat or by reward. They, they move people, if anything, by manipulation, by deception, by fear, by hatred. And it's the society that we've constructed. Well, the picture that Jesus gives here is very, very different. Very different indeed. He says, look, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That's what we expect. And it was the expectation even in Jesus' day. If, if anything, if there ever was a time that was as... Uh, as as distraught and as distressed in the leadership realm as ours, it would have been in the day of Christ. They were ruled over by maniacal egomaniacs in their emperors, self-absorbed and self-focused in every way. And that passed down the ranks to their governors and to their magistrates and to uh, the, the, the ones who ruled over them at a local level. And when you translated that even within the realm of Israel, what they essentially had around them were a group of leaders for all of their religious garb and for all of their religious language were essentially self-absorbed leaders. They ruled by deception, by hypocrisy, by manipulation. But Jesus wants you to understand a very different standard of leadership that is all built on the inner person, the inner character. And he demonstrates that to us in the opening verses of Matthew 23 by setting a contrast between what they see in their spiritual leaders and what the true character of a leader is or what it should look like. Let me read these verses for us as we frame them in our mind. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice. 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is addressing the issue of character in the leadership of Israel, what it looks like by way of contrast to what it really is in front of them. And through this contrast, he's really highlighting four elements of character that are necessary for genuine spiritual leadership. They, in some ways, kind of build on one another as you move through the entire text, beginning in verses 1 through 3, with the fact that genuine spiritual leaders align their lives with their teaching. They, they align their lives with their teaching. That you would think that would be simple enough. Like that would be most obvious that the ideals that they would promote and the ideals that they would articulate would be the ideals that they live by. That they, if they are, in other words, prescribing medication for others, that they would have first treated themselves with that medicine. But that wasn't taking place with Israel's current leadership. Jesus says that they sit on Moses' seat meaning uh, that they were, they were the ones who took the official position in the synagogue where Moses' law was read. This was what the seat of, of Moses was. This was a tradition that evolved in the synagogues, which themselves had been around in Israel for about five or 600 years. They, uh, they dawned, if you will, in the age of the Babylonian captivity, when Israel's temple was destroyed, when the sacrificial system was decimated, when they were carried off as a nation in slavery to Babylon. It was during that period of time when suddenly Israel, for the first time ever, had to figure out how to carry out their their faith, how to live out their religion without a temple and without a sacrificial system. And in the absence of all those other things, the idea of a synagogue was born. And in Babylon, they started to gather in neighborhoods and communities and then eventually constructed buildings where they could gather and they could read from the law in order to at least keep the remembrance of what they were supposed to do, even if they couldn't actually carry out the sacrifices. And as time went on and as communities of Jews popped up in different regions around the world, they would build their own synagogues all the way up till today where you still have synagogues for Jewish communities all around the world. That started in the Babylonian uh, uh, captivity. 
And even after they returned to Israel and rebuilt the temple, they continued on with this tradition of synagogues and the tradition of reading from the law of Moses. And when they did that, there was always a designated spot or a designated seat within the synagogue where someone would be called on to pull out the scrolls of the scripture, the Old Testament, and to read from those scrolls and typically with some sort of exhortation or some sort of Uh, of devotion or sermon that was given along with that. This was known as the seat of Moses. And this is what Jesus is referring to. When they are in that seat, when they're fulfilling that function, when they're giving to you the the commandments of God or the, uh, the truth of God's word to the extent that they convey that truth and convey it accurately or even articulate and exhort from it accurately, you need to do what they say. This is just simply a, a statement that you are not in any position to discount the truth of God's word based on the frailty, the weakness, or the imperfection of the messenger. People do that all the time. You talk to people about what their struggles are with the faith or with the church or with Christianity, and inevitably they tell you, well, you know, I had such and such a bad experience with this person or that person. I was disappointed. You know, that person treated me bad or treated me raw, and so I haven't been back to church ever since then. It's not most of the time about the Word of God. It rarely is it the fact that, you know, I, I searched through and I saw this commandment and I found out that that commandment just, you know, it just doesn't work. It isn't true. That aspect of God's word I just found to be false. That's not what people do. They, they tend to discount the word of God because of some imperfection in the messenger. And so Jesus is essentially saying that to the extent that these guys are communicating the word of God, exhorting you from the word of God, conveying the word of God, that you need to do what they say when they're in the seat of Moses, when they're, when they're reading from God's word. People struggle with what Jesus says here because in so many other places, Jesus is actually taking issue with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He actually says that you're supposed to not follow their commandments. Back in Matthew chapter 15, you may remember that he gave them a rebuke because he says that they worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But that's not a reference to what they did from the seat of Moses. That's not a reference to their reading from the scripture. That's actually a reference to what was known as the oral law. The oral law is exactly what it sounds like. It is a law that was conveyed orally or passed down orally as opposed to being written. So it grew up alongside of the written law, the law of Moses. You had the oral law that also evolved or, or, or emerged, I, say, I would say, during the Babylonian uh, captivity until it became a, a full-on competing text, albeit conveyed only in oral form. And it continued on in oral form all the way up until 200 AD when it was finally written down in what we know today as the Mishnah. And along with that, the Talmud, which comments on the Mishnah. But before all of that, all of this stuff was just conveyed orally. And when Jesus criticizes the teaching and commandments of, of the scribes and Pharisees, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about those debates that they would have in their, in their uh, teaching times, in their debate times, in their training times. They're all revolved around the oral law. But to the extent that people are teaching the law of Moses, the written law, 
You are obligated there, he says. But you're not necessarily obligated. In fact, you're indeed not obligated to follow their example. Because he says what they're doing is they're teaching and not practicing. They're preaching and not practicing. They had, in other words, a public persona, a public presentation of, of, uh, of, of, their, uh, of their position or maybe their doctrine or something like that. The issue that Jesus is taking is not with what they were teaching from the chair of Moses. It's the fact that they weren't living according to what they were teaching. Now, obviously, he's not talking about perfection here. No one we know is perfect because we all are in need of a Savior. We all have weaknesses. We all have sins. That's never been the standard by which God wants you to judge your leaders. But even when you come to the New Testament and you're talking about overseers and elders, there's still a mandate that you choose leaders who are what? Above reproach. What does that mean? That means that you cannot consistently bring an accusation against them. You can't consistently bring an accusation against them. It's not that they don't stumble from time to time. It's not as if their lives aren't still marked by the process of sanctification, the process of sometimes falling to temptation and confessing their sin and humbly seeking out not only forgiveness but reconciliation. It's not as if they're not in the same process as everyone else in going through that. But it's the fact that they consistently show signs of progress and sanctification and growth and a heart of seeking after God, and they do it at a consistent level. And you see that evidence, and you see that fruit in their lives. Well, Jesus is basically saying, that's not what you see with these guys. They're they're in the process of covering up They have a secret life that they're covering up. And so don't follow after what you see in them. Don't follow what you see played out in their lives and the way that they live, the way that they conduct themselves within their private quarters, their their family and their private conduct. That's what some people do. Unfortunately, rather than clinging to the Word of God, rather than seeing it as the ultimate source of their truth, rather than having a hunger and a thirst to understand that Word so that they can apply it in their lives, they try to short, short circ- or shortchange the, the process or shortcut the process, I should say, by just simply finding a leader that they like and trying to be just like them, even mimicking their behavior talking like them, walking like them, reading whatever they're reading, acting the way that they act, without ever stopping to realize how far those lives have strayed from the Word of God. Jesus is saying, that's not what I want from you. That's not what I want for your leaders. I want leaders whose lives align with their teaching so that eventually... They can say, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, you should be able to see all of the fruits of Christ working out in the life of your leader so that you understand the way it's fleshed out on a day-to-day basis. 
Another way to say this is simply the closer you get to your leaders, the more confidence you have, not less. When you get involved with their lives on a private level, on on an intimate level, what you're seeing is is the consistent follow-through of the things that you've heard taught, the things that you've heard exhorted from the pulpit or from the teaching podium or wherever it might be, the counseling office. So these are the leaders that you need. This is the character and the leader that you need. They are in private who they are in public. They're expounding a message that they themselves are living. In fact, one of the things that makes an effective leader hopefully effective is that as they're teaching, they're teaching from their own struggle against sin and temptation. They're talking to you about their own battles, or at least they're talking to you through the lens of their own battles with sin and their victory that they found through the grace of Christ. They're sharing the things out of their weakness. They can become effective at talking about the Christian life because they have become effective at knowing how to struggle through it themselves. And so you want these leaders whose lives align with what they're teaching. Well, from that key point, Jesus then draws out another key point of this kind of character of a leader that he presents to us in, in verse 4. And as I said, it builds uh, on the previous point to some extent when he tells us that genuine spiritual leaders assist the weak. That's what he's saying in verse 4. These guys, these spiritual leaders of Israel, tie up heavy burdens to bear and lay them, uh, heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with one of their fingers. This is what was descriptive of the Pharisees, they would place these um, enormous expectations, burdens on people. They had enormous, heavy expectations that they would be laying on all the people who were following them. But then when those people faltered and when they failed, they wouldn't lift a single finger to help them. The image here is I'm sure probably similar to what you might see in developing countries today. If you've ever been in a developing country, you've probably seen these beasts of burden that are walking down the streets weighed down with so many packages and, uh, uh, you know, water or food or building materials or, or whatever it might be, sometimes stacked higher than a semi, Uh, some donkey walking down the road just strapped all around himself with this enormous burden and walking alongside of him with just a little stick in his hand and nothing else will be his owner beating him on the backside to keep him moving. That's the image that he's giving here of these spiritual leaders. They're just heaping expectation after expectation after expectation on their followers. And all the while, these people are being burdened down with religious duties and acts of service and responsibilities in the synagogue and standards that they're trying to live by and keep and rituals that they were pursuing and all these things. And then eventually, they, under the burden of all of those things that they were trying to do, eventually what happens? They are crushed. They crumble. They're doomed to do it. And when it happens, they're chided 
and they're rebuked by these leaders. So in the end, these spiritual leaders, after heaping so many burdens on their people, lay on them the heaviest burden of all, which is guilt and shame. And there they stand in weariness and in frustration and in devastation because of their failure to live up to the expectation that had been laid on them. Now, that's not to say that guilt is necessarily a bad thing. In fact, if you're going to faithfully teach the Word of God, it's going to involve upholding a standard of righteousness. And that standard of righteousness is going to shine the light on all the darkness that may still remain in our life through the weakness of our flesh. Uh, uh, Excuse me, Paul himself said that the purpose of the law was in fact to create this sense of guilt. It was a tutor in order to lead you to Christ. It was intended to confine you, to put you in a kind of a prison, to make you feel the burdens of your weakness, but not to leave you to wallow in that guilt. It was supposed to lead you to the grace of the Savior. And so there's a necessary element when it comes to spiritual leadership, a necessary element of highlighting the standard of holiness that God has called us to and allowing people to feel to some extent the weaknesses of their own flesh and the areas that still they need to grow in while you point them to Christ. But the difference for these guys is that they did it with such a lack of compassion such a lack of tender-heartedness for those that were following so that when people did stumble and did fall, as so many people do, when they were weighed down with all these burdens, their spiritual leaders didn't lift a finger, not a finger, to offer any help. There was no brokenness that they could express that comes from their own weaknesses and their battles with sin. There was no eagerness to encourage their brothers and sisters in a way that they would themselves, themselves wanted to be encouraged in a time of darkness. There was no willingness to walk with them through the valleys of temptation. If anything, these leaders saw the failures of those around them as another opportunity to confirm their superiority. That's not leadership taking the weaknesses and failures of people around you to confirm your, spiritual, your spirituality, that's not leadership. True spiritual leadership ministers to those under their care with the most tender affection. Why? Because true spiritual leaders have been in the battle. They have seen their weaknesses. And so they are the most caring. They are the most caring. Like Paul uses the image of a tender the, the tender care of a nursing mother. First Thessalonians, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having such a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. 
This, this is true spiritual leadership. Like a, like a nursing mother, whenever she hears the cry of her infant child from across the room, she doesn't yell and bark out to that child, will you just be quiet? She doesn't tell the child, you know, you know, just go get yourself something to eat. I mean, she knows instinctively the weaknesses of that child and out of a compassion and out of a tender affection and out of a recognition of the need for that child, what does she do? She responds by not only embracing the child and not only providing for the child, but caressing and comforting and calming the heart of that child. That's what what Paul says true spiritual leaders do. And they do that, as I said, because they have a deep sense of their own struggle. They minister out of their own battle with sanctification. They come to you out of the labors of their own prayers, out of the confessions in their own private life of all their weaknesses. That's the thing that tenderizes their heart. That's the thing that's constantly bringing them low so that when they pray, they pray with sympathy and compassion. This is the ministry that Jesus wants. He wants those who, like himself, make the burden light and the yoke easy, where people can find rest for their souls. We find that, obviously, in Christ. But the true leader knows how to point people to that place. He knows how to point people to that place. Well, Jesus continues to clarify this spiritual leadership in verses 5 through 10, telling us then that spiritual leaders avoid self-exaltation. This, again, just kind of builds off of everything that we've seen, them hiding their own sort of hypocritical lives, them maximizing and... and uh, uh, sort of highlighting the weaknesses of others all for the same purpose because they're all about doing their deeds to be seen by others in verse 5. They're all about expanding and highlighting their own spiritual achievements. They did this among other things. Jesus says they did it among other things by, by making their phylacteries broad and the fringes of their garments or the tassels of their garments long. Phylactery is basically a box, a little leather box, and inside of that box there would be small sort of scraps of parchment. And on the parchment they would write one of four scriptures. In fact, they would write all, all these scriptures on four pieces of parchment and roll them up and put them inside of that box and they would affix the box to their forehead. You still see it today in Orthodox Judaism. They bind that box on their forehead and then they will wrap some strap all the way around their arm and bind another box to their hand. And in those boxes to this day and and even back then were scraps of Exodus 13 verses 1 to 10, Exodus 13, 11 to 16, Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 to 9, and Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 to 21. Those four passages of Scripture were bound in those boxes and placed in there. You say, well, why those verses? Well, because of what they say. Deuteronomy 6, for example, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You will bind them as a sign on your hand, and they will be frontlets between your eyes. All those verses essentially repeat that same command 
And the Jews, for whatever reason, wound up taking that so hyper-literally that they thought that it was those actual words in those particular verses that were supposed to be written down and then pasted in some way on your body, between, between your eyes and on your, on your hand. They failed to realize that God was not talking about some sort of literal manifestation or exhibition of this. He was talking, if you will, symbolically of how God's law was to be the controlling factor in your life. In fact, in Deuteronomy 11, it becomes clear that this is symbolic because he, will, he says, you will lay these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them on your hand and as the frontlets between your eyes. So there, obviously, he's, he's talking about elements, immaterial elements of your heart and your soul where these are supposed to be placed by which it becomes clear that whenever he talks about putting them on your hands, he's talking about symbolically the things that you do, the activities that you're involved with. Or whenever he talks about putting them on your forehead, he's talking about representatively uh, before your thoughts in your mind. The, The Word of God is supposed to be the governing thing that is always the filter through which you think about and see and and discern the world. So these guys, instead of doing that, instead of promoting that, instead of training people to do that, they opted for the ostentatious display of these phylacteries. And it wasn't just enough to put the phylacteries. What did they do? They expanded them. They took these little boxes and they made them bigger and bigger and ridiculously bigger. Why? Because of some silly notion that wearing a bigger box resulted in or displayed or represented bigger spirituality. Or at the very least, they wanted to make sure everyone saw the box. They wanted to make sure everybody saw the box. I, you know, I've, I remember when I was a younger man, there was a guy that carried around this big Bible, massive, thick, you know, like something you put on the coffee table, but he carried it around and it was all like warped and tattered and, you know, pages falling out like he had just been reading that thing cover to cover every month and you know, carried it around all the time. And then somebody, someday somebody told me, well, it was actually an old Bible he had that he dropped in a puddle and it soaked up all the water and now it just looks like that, you know, because it's like from the water. But he carried it around with the implication that he had been reading it ferociously. It was just some massive emblem of his spirituality. People do it all the time. They, these well-crafted images these cropped pictures of their quiet time and their open Bible and devotion and study guide and everything that they're doing in prayer and all of that or their perfect, uh, well-tended family and perfectly behaved children and all that stuff all put out there for the same reason because they just want to be seen. They just want to be acknowledged. That's what they're all about. Well, these guys were doing the same thing. Or Jesus says they lengthen their tassels, these, these corners of their garments, with, which again was a, a, a passage of Scripture that had commanded Israel to wear these very specific 
kinds of tassels. In Numbers 15, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, tell them that they will make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, that they may put the tassel on each corner, a cord of blue, and it will be a tassel for you to look at and remember the commandments of the Lord so that you might do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes. And so this was Indeed, a commandment and a tradition. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself had tassels on his own garments. You may remember at one point as he's walking through the crowds, it was a lady who had an issue of bleeding who reached out and touched one of the tassels of Christ. So there wasn't an issue necessarily with having a little tassel on the corner of your garment. But the the, the thing with these guys that he says is they lengthened them. They made them larger and larger and larger so that everyone could see and everyone was sure that they're the ones who are being obedient. It was all about ornamentation. Stuff draped all over them, hanging all over them, parading in front of all these other people so that it was obvious. It was obvious to everyone that the recognition, the glory, the praise would come to them. This was their religion. They were self-promoters, self-enhancers. They were doing everything they could to try to shame other people and to try to exalt themselves, to try to establish their superiority. And they did it from a position of leadership. From a position of leadership, they would actually promote and talk and celebrate and draw attention to what? To themselves. To their own superiority above everyone else. How they were the greatest and the best. Jesus even said that they loved the honorable seats at feast. The best seats in the synagogues. They would go to a place of uh, celebration And if they were not ushered there, they would immediately be expecting to be seated at the front table or very close to the front table or front of the table, I should say, right next to the guest of honor. And if the guest or if the host, I should say, did not properly greet them and did not properly seat them, they felt offended, snubbed because of their expectation. They lived as people who were that fragile. Always needing the accolades, always needing the attention, always needing the adulation. It's very difficult when you're around people like that, isn't it? It's draining because they have so many expectations. They always want to be greeted. They always want to be acknowledged. They always want to be adored. They always want to be praised. Or when they come to the synagogue, they want the best seats. Synagogues in those days generally would have one side of the, uh, of the hall that would be these benches, if you will, in, made out of limestone where people would sit and then they would fill up and then everyone else would have to sit on the floor. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, when they came into the room, they just expected not to sit on the floor. They were going to sit on one of those benches and not only on the benches, they were going to sit in the center, the place where everyone in the room could see them. I remember when I was ministering in Africa, in, uh, in Kenya, going to a church one time, being invited to preach, and coming into the room, and I saw up on the stage these big purple thrones. That's where all the elders sat. 
purple throne spread all the way across the the stadium, the, the, the uh, sort of auditorium there. And then whenever I did finally get up to preach and I looked out, I realized that halfway back through the, uh, uh, through the hall, there was an elevated platform with more purple thrones that were for the wives of the elders. And the whole, the whole enterprise was all about that. It was all about exalting and, and elevating and garnering praise. And it was all about reputation and title and position. It was atrocious how glaringly out of step this was with what would have been pleasing to Christ. Jesus even says that that was what, one of these, uh, what these guys wanted. They wanted the respectful greetings. They would go into the marketplace and they would want to be called rabbi, which is a, a word that is probably familiar to you. It's a basic title for a Jewish teacher. It means exalted teacher. I guess in our circles it might be akin to something like reverend, they wanted to be known as reverend. I, I've always been mystified by, by people who plaster that on their cars and bumper stickers or even license plates. People who have gone out and manipulated the system to get some sort of ordination and then they wear it like a badge. These people loved it. They demanded it. They sought it. Or they wanted to be called father. They wanted to be called father. There are whole religions today that are built on that premise of calling their priest father. Jesus says, don't call anyone on earth your father. You only have one father. He's in heaven. Or instructor, or you could translate that teacher. I think if these guys were around today, they would have the billboards along the side of the highway. They were brandishing them, bishop this and bishop that. They wanted to be titled and recognized and praised. Why? Because their whole, their whole scheme was about being seen doing their deeds to be praised by men. Jesus talked about it back in Matthew chapter 6, how they used to sound a trumpet whenever they gave, how they used to wipe ashes on their face whenever they fasted so that people would pay attention to how gloomy they look, how whenever they prayed, they only prayed in such a public way that they could be seen praying. Everything that they did was all motivated by this, but their private life, their inner life was bankrupt. It was bankrupt. For all their public display, there was no private worship of God. There was no private sacrifice of their hearts and minds to the Lord. They were defined by all these public displays and efforts, but not by private, humble confession and brokenness. St. Augustine famously said, the love of honor is the deadly bane of true piety. Other vices bring forth evil works, but this brings forth works in an evil, good works in an evil way. So they hid it. They hid all of this stuff behind what? Behind their displays 
of piety. It was all about them saying things but not living them. Beating the people around them down so that they could be exalted. And then demanding these exalted seats and titles and places. Well, that leads to the final character of genuine spiritual leadership that Jesus mentions here in verses 11 and 12. Genuine spiritual leaders accept lowly service. The greatest among you will be your servant, your diakonos. It's basically a word for a menial laborer. It referred to the, what were essentially the slaves or the hired hands, the low-skilled labor that would serve you your meal at the table. They were never seated at the table. They were never given that status. They were always the servants. And so Jesus says, this is the greatest among you, is the person who assumes that role. They're not the one being served, but they're the one serving That's not to say necessarily that leadership is servile. There is such a a thing as being a people pleaser, being someone who is always in a, a fit of fancy to try to keep everyone around them happy. And so therefore, they're They're always doing all kinds of things, but it's done from an ill motive in order to garner the affection and praise of people. That's not not the kind of servanthood that Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about here is the unsung servant, the unnoticed servant, the servant who, after having done everything that he has done, can say nothing but we are but unprofitable servants and worthy of no praise. That's the servant he's talking about. That's the kind of servant who sometimes will do the unpopular thing. That's the kind of servant who sometimes will take the position that he has to take in order to protect the gospel of God or the people of God, even if it makes him seem like he is not serving your needs or serving your agenda. But the thing about this leader is he's not serving for the applause and the approval of men. He's serving for the applause and the approval of God. And that's his focus. It's not how many people are serving me. It's not how much power do I have. It's not how far the knowledge of me has traveled. It's really all about what has the Lord called me to do. And so he pursues that because he understands where exaltation comes from it doesn't come from men and it doesn't come from your own efforts it comes from the Lord because he understands that the one who exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted there's a fundamental character and a fundamental conviction in the spiritual leader that he must be empty. He must be empty. If he's ever going to be a vessel that can be filled by the Lord with fruit and with the Spirit and with power, he must be empty. Empty of himself, empty of his own vainglory, empty of his own pursuits, empty of all that stuff. And he understands the process of emptying. 
the process of suffering and the process of sacrifice and the process of being poured out and the process of having his sins stripped away and the process of confession and brokenness and prayer. He understands all that because he understands that for God to ever use him or use her or use them as a vessel, God uh, they, they understand that they must be humbled. You know, I love that passage over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul talks about his own ministry. How he wanted a life that was consistent. It wasn't a stumbling block for anybody. But he understood that there was a process that had to happen for that to occur he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. With weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We're treated as imposters and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, but possessing everything. This is Paul's understanding of spiritual leadership. Like, I, I just don't want my life to be a stumbling block. And if God has to take me through all this stuff, all this endurance and all this pain and all this suffering and all this poverty and all this, uh, if that's what God has to do, that's what God has to do. As long as I can be used because I'm a servant. I'm a servant. That's spiritual leadership. That's leadership in general. So leadership in the church. That's leadership in the family. That's leadership in the nation. That's leadership character, as Jesus defined it. Father, this is uh, such a burden for us as we think about the world around us and the leaders that they clamor after, we know both in the church and out of the church, there are many who are self-exalting, hypocritical, laying burdens on so many others and seeking places of honor for themselves. May you spare us from these kinds of leaders. May you grant us your mercy once again. And give us men of character, men of humility, men of emptiness, so that they can be filled by you. And let us have their lives that we can follow after because their lives are consistent with Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.